All right, Shabbat Shalom. I want to join again, uh, welcome everyone joining by our, our live stream channel as well on YouTube. That's Chaim Dallas on YouTube. And uh, we are in a uh, extensive series on the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, verse by verse. Today is part 10, and we're going to look today at the famous account of Yeshua calming the storm. Uh, so turn with me to Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Mark 4, verse 35. We have it on the, on the overheads as well. That day, when evening came, Yeshua said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat. There was nearly swamped. Yeshua was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves quiet be still then the wind died down and it was completely calm he said to his disciples why are you so afraid do you still have no faith they were terrified and asked each other who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him wow this famous passage is all about the power of Yeshua. Let's look on the overhead. Four things this is going to tell us. Uh, this passage is going to tell us about his power. Uh, number one, Yeshua has real world power. Number two, he has infinite power. Number three, he has unmanageable power. And number four, he has costly power. So number one, Yeshua has real world power. Notice how this passage is packed full with all these little details. Uh, so, for example, we're told that this happened in the evening. Uh, then we're told the Yeshua got into a boat just as he was, uh, presumably wearing whatever he had been wearing earlier in the days. He was teaching the crowd uh, from a boat out just offshore. Then we're told there, there were a bunch of other little boats around him. Then we're told he went to sleep uh, in the boat uh, on a cushion, and that he was in the stern, uh, the back part of the boat. Now, what's the significance of all these little details? It actually helps demonstrate the authenticity of this as a first-hand eyewitness account. In fact, one prominent uh, Cambridge University scholar, she said that she would be prone to believe this story is just a legend, except for all these little seemingly extraneous details. Look at all these little seemingly insignificant details. Uh, why, for example, would you, uh, if you were writing a, a mere legend, why would you write down there are all these other little boats around him? That doesn't contribute anything to the story. It doesn't move the story along at all. It doesn't add to its meaning or symbolism. Uh, similarly, uh, why does it tell us Yeshua was, went along just as he was and didn't go back to the shore before taking off again in the boat? Uh, why all these details? Uh, again, they don't help the story. They don't tell us anything important about the story's meaning. The answer is, these are memories. Memories of someone, probably Peter, uh, who was there. Uh, and he relates them to Mark as Mark's writing his gospel. The only reason these details would be here is if someone remembered them. Uh, they're eyewitness, first-hand memories. Uh, they're there only because someone remembered that it was true and that it actually happened. Uh, because back in those days... Unlike today, well, today when we write fiction, we added, we added all these little details to make it look realistic. But that's not how legends were written back then. Not at all. 
Uh, and so biblical scholars, for example, Richard Bachman, uh, N.T. Wright, many biblical scholars, they conclude this must be eyewitness, firsthand reporting. This is not a legend. Uh, it's not written as a legend. It, it couldn't be a legend. Uh, there's no other reason for all these details to be here unless they actually happened. Uh, and this is important to note because the average secular Western person today says, I can't believe all these New Testament uh, accounts about Yeshua. We don't have the original Yeshua. Uh, these New Testament accounts, uh, they were written down much later, uh, and they evolved over time. Uh, so you really don't know what the original Yeshua was like. All we know is that many, many years later, uh, the church came along and came up with all these legends and put forth the Yeshua that they wanted us to believe in. But we don't really know who the real Yeshua is. We just have these legends which came along much later. Now, the only problem with that, with that theory is that it is completely false. <laughs> and the gospel accounts do not fit into that theory at all. The gospels are written way too early to be legends. They were all written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And they're way too detailed to be legends. So either these are actual eyewitness reports, or Mark, 2,000 years ago, without any predecessors or successors, suddenly, out of nowhere, anticipated modern narrative realistic fiction and then stopped. No one else followed him. In other words, 2,000 years ago, with no predecessors and no successors, suddenly, Mark starts writing fiction the way that we write fiction today. Never happened before, never happened again for 2,000 years. Do you think that's what happened? No, of course not. But either this is actual eyewitness reporting or something like that happened. Uh, and and, and, and if, the, if the Western critical scholars average today are, are to, believe, uh, to be believed. So it's pretty clear that that is not what happened. So this is eyewitness reporting. And what this means is this really happened. The power of Yeshua isn't just the power that comes to you internally uh, when you read the scriptures in faith. But it's also the power that happened in the real world. Uh, in real time, in real space, in real history. Now, why does this matter? Because people still say, well, I'm interested in Messianic faith, but, but some of the things Yeshua says I like, and some I don't like. And some things the Bible teaches I, I agree with, and some I, I don't agree with. Now, wait a minute. Either Yeshua was not raised from the dead in real time and real space and real history. It didn't really happen. And therefore, you can believe whatever you want. <laughs> or he was proven to be the Son of God because he was raised from the dead. Uh, and this power happened in real time, in real space, in real history. And it really happened. And if that's true, what right do you have to say, well, I like this teaching of Yeshua's, but I don't like that teaching? So what if you happen to like it or not? <laughs> Who cares? That's not even relevant. If this really happened, then you need to deal with him who he really is, as he is. There's no negotiation. This is real power in real time. And if we're supposed to trust Yeshua in the storms of our own life, which is one of the teachings of this passage, one of the meanings of this passage, then we need to know that this really happened, we, that, he, that he really did this. So on the overhead, number one, this is real time power. Number two, on the overhead, uh, okay, th th this power is infinite. 
This passage ends with the disciples asking in Mark 4.41, Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. And the answer is, this is someone with infinite power. The Sea of Galilee, it's 700 feet below the sea level. Just to the north is Mount Hermon, uh, 9,200 feet above sea level. Uh, and, and, and this topography produces the cold air from the mountains coming down, clashing with the warm air from the Sea of Galilee coming up. It results in all these sudden violent storms on the sea. Lots of squalls uh, and thunder boomers and tempests. Now the disciples, they're professional fishermen. They're, they're used to these storms. But this must have been an incredible storm. Because even these experienced sailors, uh, these disciples, they thought they were going to die. No, they don't say, Master, we might die. No, they say, look at Mark 4.38. We read, the disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They thought they were about to drown. So it must have been this incredible storm. Uh, and then Yeshua wakes up and he does two things. Two things that are just amazing. First, the first is the astonishing simplicity of what he says. Notice he doesn't stand up, roll up his sleeves, <laughs> tell everybody, stand back, and then pronounce some magic incantation or invoke some higher power. He doesn't wave a magic wand or raise up a staff. No. What he does is very simple. He just utters two verbs. Here's what he says to the wind and to the waves. Mark 4.39. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Literally, he says, be quiet and stay quiet. That's it. Yeshua, he says this to a hurricane. This is how you would talk to, to an unruly child. You know, sit down and stay there. Uh, be quiet and stay quiet. That's how you talk to a child. Yeshua talks to a hurricane and simply says, be quiet and stay quiet. That's the first astonishing thing. The second astonishing thing is that it did. Immediately. Mark four thirty nine. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Notice it doesn't, that not only did the wind die down, but also that it was completely calm. Now, you may think this is redundant until you realize that he's, he's talking about the wind and the sea. Because the second phrase where it says it was completely calm, it's literally the word mega calm. It's a word for dead calm. Have you ever seen a dead calm? Have you ever seen water that's as smooth as glass? No waves at all. You can almost see your face in it. Do you know what happened? Yeshua said, be quiet and stay quiet. And the first thing we see is the wind stopped. Now, some critic might try to claim, oh, this was just a coincidence. But if you've ever been on the sea, you've ever been at the ocean, you know that even when the storms die down, the waves keep pounding for hours and hours and hours, sometimes even days afterwards. But when Yeshua said, be quiet and stay quiet, not only did the wind instantly stop, but the waves suddenly went dead calm. So here's Yeshua, hurricane, wind, roaring, waves, pounding. Be quiet and stay quiet. And suddenly there's complete silence. Everything stopped. This is incomparable power. If there was one thing that all the ancient cultures believed, uh, if there was one consensus point among all the ancient cultures, is that the sea was an uncontrollable uh, kind of power. Uh, it was uncontrollable to any other power but God himself. 
The sea was, was a primeval symbol of chaos uh, and the forces of darkness. Indeed, the Hebrew word for sea, the word yam, uh, and for the deep, the word tahom, these are also names for ancient Canaanite deities. Uh, and the monster uh, that, that uh, opposes mankind, Leviathan, he's often depicted as a sea serpent. Uh, and there's a reason in Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem, we read there is no sea. The sea was the ultimate symbol in ancient Middle Eastern culture and language and legends and literature of uncontrollable destruction. The ocean in its full fury uh, exhibited uncontrollable, inexorable power. And only God could control the sea. You know, in Second Maccabees, uh, chapter 9, talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the Syrian despot who, who ruled over Israel in 160 B.C., uh, leading up to the Jewish revolt and, you know, the story of Hanukkah. Uh, Second Maccabees uh, recounts how Antiochus claimed that he had the power to calm the waves. And all the Jewish priests and prophets and rabbis and teachers got together and said, Blasphemy! That type of claim is utter blasphemy. Because only God can control the wind and the waves. So, for example, we read this, Psalm 104, verse 3. The Lord rides upon the wings of the wind. And makes the wind his, winds his messengers. Psalm 135 verse 7. The Lord makes the clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and, and brings out the wind of, of, um, for, from his storehouses. Psalm 107, 25. The Lord speaks and stirs up a tempest. Lifts high the waves. He stills the storms to a whisper. And the waves of the sea are hushed and grow calm. Only the Lord himself, Yudhe and can still the wind and the waves. And now here's Yeshua. Exercising the power that only God has. Everybody agrees only God has this power. And here's Yeshua exercising it. And again, note Yeshua. He doesn't conjure or invoke or call upon a higher power to do this. You know, if you read any great uh, uh, healing or miracle story. Uh, whether in legends or, or in the Bible itself. They always call upon some higher power. You know, the prophets would say, in the name of the Lord, uh, be healed, or, or be cast out, or whatever the miracle was. But Yeshua speaks in his own authority. He rebukes the wind and the waves, these forces of creation, and basically says to them, says to them sit down and shut up. <laughs> and the overhead, do you know what Yeshua is saying? He's saying, I'm not calling on a higher power, because I am the higher power. I'm not someone who has power. I am power. I am power himself. And anyone or anything in the universe that has power has it on loan from me. You know, people say, well, Yeshua never claimed to be God. These people simply do not know how to read a text. He not only claimed it, he showed it. And any Jewish reader would have immediately known what this miracle meant. And not only is this a picture of Yeshua's divine power, it's also a picture of spiritual warfare. Note the text says Yeshua rebuked the wind and the waves. Same word the New Testament uses when Yeshua rebukes a demon. Remember, we said that the, the wind, the sea, the storm, uh, these wild forces of nature, they represented the, the primeval uh, powers of chaos in the ancient Near East. Uh, these demonic powers, uh, but the Hebrew words for, for the names for the sea and for the deep uh, were actually names of Canaanite gods. This is also a picture of demonic forces coming against Yeshua, trying to prevent him from reaching his, destina his destination. 
Okay, well, where was she going? Well, the next chapter, the next verses tell us, in the beginning of chapter 5, uh, that he, he's going to the Gadarenes uh, to cast out the evil spirits uh, from, the, from the demoniac who lived among the caves. So we can read this account to the end of Mark 4, where Yeshua calming the wind and the waves on another level uh, as well. As a picture of spiritual warfare. With Yeshua being the divine warrior Lord who rebukes and overcomes the powers of chaos and darkness. Only God has the power to calm the sea. And Yeshua here is telling us, he's telling us here who he is. uh, by, By doing exactly that. Now, what does this mean for you and for me? Because there's only really only two options. Uh, this is put in very stark, very stark terms by this uh, well-known short story by Flannery O'Connor called uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's a shocking story, a little short story, about a grandmother and the misfit. And the misfit, he's murdering people left and right. And he's got an interesting conversation with his grandmother before he kills her, too. And at one point, the misfit, he describes how Yeshua has thrown everything off out of whack. Uh, and he, and because either this world is just the result of a storm, just, just wild nature, uh, we're here by accident, uh, due, due to the blind forces of nature, and when we die, we rot, we just go back to the dust. So in the end, whether you're a cruel person or a loving person, makes no difference at all. So either we're all just here because of, of, of a storm, or, or, If Yeshua is who he said he is, if he is Lord of the storm, then there's safety. Then there's meaning in life. Then there's hope and security and and a future of love. But then, of course, you're not in complete uh, independent control of your life. Because Yeshua demands your life. On the overhead. And so this misfit, he puts it like this in the story. He says, Jesus has thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said then there's nothing to do but to throw away everything and follow him. But if he didn't, there's nothing to do then to enjoy the few minutes you've got left by killing someone or burning down their house or doing some other kind of meanness. There's hardly no pleasure in that. If you think here that that Flannery O'Connor in this story, she's drawing the options too starkly, too strongly, you don't know the darkness in men's hearts apart from Yeshua. So who is this Yeshua? He is one who, of infinite power who pushes you to the brink on the overhead. So Yeshua's power, number one, is real world, real time power. Number two, is infinite power. And number three, it's unmanageable power. Look at the emotional life here of the disciples. Before Yeshua calms the storm, they're scared. <laughs> they're so scared. Look at the crowd in Mark 4.38. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? But after Yeshua calms the storm, they're more scared. <laughs> Look at Mark 4.41. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this that even in the wind and the waves obey him? The disciples, after Yeshua's miracle, were absolutely terrified. Uh, their fears actually get worse afterwards uh, for them. Why? Uh, so, so first, uh, they're, they're scared. Uh, and there's two reasons why they're, why, why they're terrified. Number one, they're scared of the presence of the storm's power. But now suddenly, they realize they're in the presence of someone from another world. They know they're in the presence of the holy. And just as Moses hit the deck, fell on his face, when God's glory was revealed in the burning bush, in the fury of the fire. And Job hit the deck when the glory of God was revealed in the fury of the wind. 
So the disciples are now trembling with holy fear, with awe and reverence when they realize they are in the presence of the holy. Because in the midst of the power and the fury of the wind and the waves, the presence and the glory of God has now been manifested to them. And they are so terrified and they cry out, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Freud never understood the thing that people fear most is the holiness of God. That's why unbelievers run from Yeshua. If Yeshua, in all his majesty, tonight were to knock on your door, you wouldn't say, oh, hi, buddy, come on in. No, you would fall on your face. When the resurrected Messiah and all his glory and all his majesty and holiness appears, all creation will fall at his feet because he is other. He is holy. And that means that only do people tremble at his voice. But even the seas that have no ears listen to his command. Even the winds that have no knowledge know enough to stop blowing when he says, peace, be still. That's the first reason they were terrified, these disciples. The second reason uh, they were terrified is this. Look at Mark 4.37. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat, so the boat was nearly swamped. The boat is almost full of water. They're, they're desperately trying to bail it out. But, but they can't bail it out fast enough. They know they're, they're just seconds away uh, from drowning. Mark 4.38, next verse. Yeshua was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples uh, woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? These disciples here, they're basically confronting Yeshua, and they're saying to him, You don't care, do you? We're dying, and you don't care. And doesn't this unfair, faithless accusation, if we're honest, convict us as well? Because we're often guilty of this same knee-jerk emotion when we're in trouble or facing disappointments. And we lash out at the Lord in anger and in lots of self-pity and a sense of entitlement. Let's be honest. We've all felt like these disciples from time to time. You feel like you're sinking. You feel everything is going wrong. Uh, And God seems to be asleep. He's not around. He's not aware. Uh, So they wake up Yeshua and they basically say to him, you've gone asleep on us in our hour of greatest need. You're asleep, Yeshua, in our hour of greatest need. And you don't care. Because if you loved us, here's their argument, if you loved us, you wouldn't be letting us go through this. If you loved us, we wouldn't be going through these storms. If you loved us, we wouldn't be about to sink. If you loved us, you wouldn't be letting us go through this deadly peril. And so what does Yeshua do? He calms the storm. But then he turns around and what does he say? Does he say, oh, I understand how you felt. No, what does he say? Look at Mark 440. Yeshua said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the... um, what do you mean, Yeshua, why, why we were we afraid? We were afraid that you did because we were afraid you didn't love us. Uh, because now here's their theology. If you love us, you wouldn't let these bad things happen to us. On the overhead. But Yeshua says, guess what? Your premise is wrong. You should have known better. I do allow people whom I love to go through storms. 
I can love someone and still let them go through a storm. You have no right to panic on the overhead. You want to know why they're so scared? They're scared because Yeshua is is as unmanageable as the storm itself. The storm has has near infinite power. You, You can't control it. But Yeshua has infinitely more power. And you can't control him either. Now, you may ask, what's the difference between these two? They're both uncontrollable power. There's a huge difference. The storm doesn't love you. And there's only two alternatives. Either the misfit was right. You say, I don't believe in Yeshua. Okay, fine. Do you realize then that you're at the mercy of the storm? What do you mean? It's not always storming in my life. Yes, it is. Because notice, because, the, because nature is going to wear you down. It's going to eventually destroy you. Uh, over time, your body will give out. Uh, you eventually will die. Nature will wear you down. And maybe it'll happen sooner than, than just old age. Uh, maybe it's some kind of natural disaster. Because nature is violent uh, and overwhelming. It, it's red in tooth and claw. It's an unmanageable power, nature. Okay, but you say, well, well uh, if I go to Yeshua, he's, he's not under my control either. He lets things happen that, that I don't understand. He doesn't do things according to my plan. He doesn't do things that, that make sense to me. Yes, you're right. Yeshua says, I'm God. And if I'm God, I have the power to do this. Uh, uh, then, uh, then I'm great enough to sometimes let you go through things that you don't understand. So my power, by definition, is unmanageable. You say, what's the, definition? what's the difference then between these two unmanageable outcomes? All the difference in the world. Because unlike raw, the raw power of nature, Yeshua's unmanageable power is filled with love for you. That's the difference. So, so where are you going to go? If you know that Yeshua loved you, this is what he's saying to his disciples here in Mark chapter 4. If you really knew that I loved you, uh, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, uh, you could have been calm during this storm. It could have been storming on the outside, but you could have been calm within. You see, your premise is wrong. You said, if you loved us, you wouldn't let us go through all these things. You wouldn't let bad things happen to us. But Yeshua says, sorry, your premise is wrong. Oh, I can love you and still let bad things happen to you. Because I'm God and I know things better than you. And the overhead. If you have a God great enough and infinite enough and powerful enough for you to be mad at him. Because he doesn't stop your suffering. Then you also have a God who's great enough and infinite enough and powerful enough to have reasons to allow you to suffer that you don't understand. You cannot have it both ways. Elizabeth Elliot, she puts it beautifully, perfectly. She says this on the overhead. She says, God is God. And since he's God, he's worthy of my worship and my service. And I'll find no rest, and I'll find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. Do you hear that? Storm. If you're at the mercy of the storm, uh, it's unmanageable power. uh, But it doesn't love you. The only place that's safe is in the will of God. But the will of God is necessarily 
Because he's God and you're not. It's necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond your largest notions of what he's up to. His power, of, of course it's unmanageable. Uh, he's not safe. But he's good. Yeshua is saying in this passage, I can let you go through this, even though I do love you. And if you knew that I loved you, you'd be able to go through things like this. If you were totally sure of my love, you could be calm in the midst of the storm. So you have no right to panic. Now, where does this bring us? Aren't we sympathetic to how the disciples reacted to and responded to these events? There's a violent storm. Yeshua acts like he's not going to wake up. He's not going to do anything. The boat's being swamped. Uh, they're sinking. Uh, they, they freak out. And they say to Yeshua, don't you care? Don't you love us? And Yeshua wakes up. He calms the waves. And then in essence, he says to his disciples, if you knew I loved you, you would have been able to go through this storm and remain calm. And if we're honest, we will say, that's really hard. <laughs> that's a hard saying. I don't know if I could handle storms like that either. But we have something that they didn't even have. We have a resource that they did not have yet. You have a resource now, if you are in Messiah Yeshua, that will enable you to have calm inside, no matter what storms are raging on the outside. What is that resource? The secret to the meaning of this passage lies in the fact that Mark here has deliberately laid out this account using language that's identical to the language in the famous account of Jonah in the boat, in the storm, in the book of Jonah, chapter 1. If you compare these two accounts, it is amazing. Both Yeshua and Jonah are out to sea in a boat. Both Yeshua's boat and Jonah's boat overtaken by a storm. And the description of the, of the storm is almost identical. Both Yeshua and Jonah are both asleep in the storm. Fourth, uh, in both cases, the sailors come to the sleeper and they say to the sleeper, we're perishing. And they even use the very same Greek word for perishing. If you look at Jonah and the Septuagint, same word. So they're out in this boat, they're in a storm, in a boat. Uh, both Yeshua and Jonah, they're asleep in the boat. In both cases, the sailors come and rebuke the sleepers and cry out to them, we're about to perish. In both cases, the sailors tell the sleepers, do something to save us. We're about to die also. And then fifth, in both cases, there's a miraculous intervention by God and the sea is calmed. And sixth, in both accounts, the last thing we read is that the sailors in each case, after they're delivered, are even more terrified than they were before. Wow. So what we have here are almost, almost identical stories. But you say, well, of course, David, there's one major difference. Jonah, in the midst of the storm, says to the sailors, there's only one thing you can do. Uh, if I perish, you survive. Uh, if I die, you will live. And so they throw Jonah in. And you say, that's a major difference. That didn't happen here with Yeshua. Uh, that's, one, that's one difference between these two stories. Or is it? I think Mark here is tr purposely trying to hint these two stories are not actually different at all. Now, when you stand back, not when you stand back a bit. Because in Matthew chapter 12, we read that Yeshua says, I am the true Jonah. A greater than Jonah is here. What did he mean by that? Yeshua calmed the storm and the wind and the waves and saved his disciples. 
But Yeshua says someday he is going to calm all storms. And he is going to still all waves. He's going to destroy destruction. And break brokenness. And kill death. And the storms will be gone. He is going to one day still all storms for you. That's part of what the kingdom of God being coming here means. Well, how can he do that? Here's how. Yeshua can only do that because when he was on the cross, he was thrown into the ultimate storm. He was thrown under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Yeshua was thrown into the only storm that could actually sink you and me. There's only one storm that can really sink you. And that's what you owe because of your own wrongdoing. And Yeshua turned his prow, as it were, into the ultimate storm of the eternal justice of God. And he bowed his head, went right into that for your sake and mine. And he did not flinch. And he was demolished. And he, he paid for our sins on the cross. And if you see him doing that for you, uh, and bowing his head into the ultimate storm for you, to the degree that that is burned into the center of your being, to that degree you will know that he cares. And you will never again say, Lord, why don't you care? Don't you love me? Because you'll know that he does. And if you know that he did not abandon you in that storm, that ultimate storm of God's judgment, what makes you think that, that he'll abandon you in your own little storms? These infinitely smaller storms that you're going through. To the degree that you see that he was the true Jonah. That he was thrown into the ultimate storm of God's wrath for you. To atone for your sins. To that degree, you can recite with John Newton, this famous little poem on the overhead. John Newton writes, His love in times past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. By prayer let me wrestle, then he will perform. With Messiah in the vessel, I smile at the storm. We tend, in our times of trouble, in our times of distress, to cry out to Yeshua, Teacher, don't you know we're dying? You've fallen asleep at our time of greatest need. But Yeshua says, you only think I've fallen asleep. But the truth is, you fell asleep on me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, my disciples, the human race, if you will, fell asleep on me in my hour of greatest need. And you've been asleep on me all your life. Yeshua can say that of every one of us, can't he? You really, you really have gone to sleep on me. But I've loved you anyways. My power is infinite. My power is unmanageable. But it's completely at your service. Why? Because it's costly power. It cost me. Infinitely. To exercise my power in such a way that someday I'm going to be able to still all the storms. And give you a new heavens and a new earth. If you see that. And you bring that into the very center of your being. You will know that he loves you. You will know that he cares. And then you'll have the calm, no matter what it looks like outside, to handle anything in life. Now in closing, let me very briefly look at what Yeshua says to the disciples. When he says, do you still have no faith? 
Because that same verse can also be translated, where is your faith? We tend to think of faith as something you, know, you just get or something you just have. People say, oh, I wish I had your faith. But Yeshua is saying, where is your faith? Uh, I, I've given you plenty of evidence, uh, evidence of my love, of my power. You don't have to freak out. Where is your faith? Get it out. It ought to be here. Exercise your faith. There's no need to panic. Faith is not blind. It's based on evidence. And I've given you lots of evidence of who I am. And at this point in the Gospels, the the, the disciples don't have anything like the, the knowledge or the evidence that we have today. And so Yeshua is saying to you today, get out and exercise the faith that you have. And you can handle, with my help, he says, all of the storms of life. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team, come on up. Hallelujah. Uh, Thank you, Father. Thank you that you are the Lord of the storm. Yeshua, even the wind and the waves obey you. Because you are Lord of heaven and earth. When, When you rebuke the storm and when you calm the seas, you don't need to call upon some higher power. Because you are the higher power. Higher than any ruler or principality or evil force or dominion of darkness. And if you are in us, Yeshua, you give us the same authority over the devil and his demons. Lord, help us today to walk in purity and in holiness and in humility. To die to self. So that we may exercise the spiritual authority and not give the devil a foothold. Lord Yeshua, you are holy. We fall on our face before you. We confess that we can't control you. We can't tame you or manage you. But we know that you're good and that you love us. You demonstrated your costly love by bowing your head into the storm for us on the cross. And this is the ultimate proof of your self-sacrificial love. Your victory over sin and Satan and hell and the grave and death itself. And so you tell us, Yeshua, that that you can love us infinitely and yet still let us from time to time go through troubles and disappointments and storms. We cannot put you in a box. We cannot understand all your ways. But we can rest in your love, even in the midst of the storm. Lord Yeshua, you and you alone keep my eyes above the waves. For I am yours and you are mine. We pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.